legal human privilege of habeas corpus, so that he could collaterally authorize arrest, imprisonment, and punishment without a warrant. They objected to his ordering military searches of homes, driving men and women from their loved ones without hope of communication, and in some cases even without legal counsel. They despised his rejection of free speech. Newspapers suffered closure when they dared criticize his administration. Small wonder, then, that Sanders and his political colleagues, Clement C. Clay and James P. Holcomb, as well as John Wilkes Booth, John Surratt, and others of their stripe, saw Lincoln in the same light as Emperor Napoleon III, Tsar Nicholas I of Russia, Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria, Queen Isabella of Spain, or King Pedro V of Portugal. Lincoln's assassination was proposed again and again, starting with a fanatical group of supporters of George Sanders' idol, the Italian patriot Giuseppe Mazzini, in Baltimore in 1861. His death was planned at a meeting between Sanders, Clay, and Holcomb at Niagara in August 1864, but was defused when Dean Richmond, chairman of the New York State Democratic Party, who hated the president but stopped short of the idea of murder, reported the matter through a go-between. Washington. Assassination was again planned by the same group. It was to take place on the eve of the presidential election on November 7, 1864, but it was delayed by a number of factors, including increased security and the failure of the egregious organization known as the Sons of Liberty to act according to plan and bring about a coup d'etat. Another factor was the unexpected and extraordinary value of Lincoln to the very people who threatened his life. On July 2nd and then on September 24, 1864, the most upright of American presidents wrote into law acts allowing for trading with the Confederacy. Robert E. Cox and Beverly Tucker, both part of Sanders' murderous group, and Sanders himself, benefited considerably from this largesse. For the time being, as they earned a fortune from shipping pork south in return for cotton, turpentine, and rosin, and more modest sums from medical supplies in the hands of Booth, Surratt, and others, Lincoln was worth more to the conspirators alive than he would be if he were dead. Confederate President Jefferson Davis and his secretaries of state, treasury, army, and navy did nothing to stop such trade. Three states' governors of New York, Massachusetts, and the Union-controlled area of Virginia oiled the machine from which Lincoln's circle of friends corruptly benefited. Among these beneficiaries were such figures as Lincoln's bodyguard and marshal of the District of Columbia, Ward Hill Lamon, the Republican power broker, Thurlow Weed, his intimate associates, Orville H. Browning, and James W. Singleton, and his Illinois admirer and supporter, the lawyer, Leonard Sweat. Collusion between North and South, while thousands died in the field, also benefited Lincoln's two sisters-in-law, Mrs. Benjamin Helm and Mrs. Clement White. Familial connections eased the breaking of the blockade of shipments of goods and arms by sea. Rear Admiral Samuel P. Lee chief of the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron until November 1864, 
had as a father-in-law none other than the champion cotton speculator and trader with the enemy, the Peace Commissioner, Francis Preston Blair, Sr. David Levy Uly, Confederate congressman and millionaire, who owned the Fernandina Plantation and Railroad that made shipments north and south through North Florida an easy matter, had, as his wife's sister's husband, Lincoln's Advocate General, Joseph Holt. Collusion continued untrammeled until January 1865, when a moralistic congressman from Maine, Elihu B. Washburn, completed months of investigation into the matter of treasonable trade, interviewed dozens of those involved at hearings of the Committee on Commerce, and so severely threatened to confiscate the appropriate privileges that Lincoln nervously began to shift the decisions on the trading to its chief opponent, Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant. Once that transfer was made, Lincoln's usefulness was thought to have expired. The road was clearly set for the night of Good Friday, April 14, 1865. Chapter 1. The Mission In Richmond, Virginia, in the early months of 1864, Almost three years from the inception of the Civil War, Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederacy, raised the colossal sum of five million dollars, equivalent to fifty-seven million dollars today, from the Confederate Congress for a secret service fund that would unofficially be operated by Judah P. Benjamin, his accomplished and ingenious Secretary of State. The talk of the spring season was that President Lincoln and his Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton, had ordered Captain H. Judson Kilpatrick and the dashing Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren to invade, conquer, and burn Richmond in a surprise attack, release the Union prisoners at Belle Isle, and destroy the southern capital's mills, garrisons, and the canal and river boats. An order carried from the headquarters of the 3rd Division Cavalry Corps, Division of the Mississippi, was found on Dahlgren's body after his death in action on March 2, 1864, containing the words, Once in the city, Jefferson Davis and his cabinet must be killed. It was the Dahlgren note that, even more than previous threats against his life, compelled Jefferson Davis, strongly supported by Judah P. Benjamin and Secretaries of Navy and War Stephen R. Mallory and James A. Seddon, to embark upon the conspiratorial policy of early 1864 that involved the support of large numbers of anti-Lincolnians in Britain and British North America in arranging guerrilla raids on the Northwest and Northeastern United States, releasing and stirring up prisoners in Union military jails, and most importantly of all, provoking war between England and the Union. It was hoped that such a conflict would result in Davis's installation as head of a recognized independent government of the South, with states' rights in North and South at last fully recognized and Lincoln rendered useless. Until 1864, such dreams had scant hope of fulfillment. Expeditions into British North America by poorly briefed and untutored secret agents unfamiliar with the craft of espionage, had proved no more than irritants. 
It was clear that Davis must invest a considerable amount of his government's rapidly draining treasure to secure the results he needed. To find suitable subversives was no easy task. Southern males above the servant class saw themselves as gentlemen, and an expedition to British North America, no matter how generously financed, was a journey to which no gentleman could comfortably look forward. There were no slaves up there, as the British government had abolished slavery. Instead, a southern arrival would be sure to find, annoyingly, successful travelers by the Underground Railroad, enterprising African Americans who had slipped across the border and were working at small businesses of their own or as paid workers in cities and on the land. A popular center of black settlement was the very town which had been chosen based upon a recommendation by a visiting Mrs. Robert E. Lee, wife of the general, as a Confederate headquarters. St. Catharines, Ontario, a pleasant leafy hamlet where Harriet Tubman had once made her home. And who knew whether life was civilized in that remote northern province? In the antebellum years, a grand tour of Europe was on the cards for the well-to-do. British North America most emphatically, was not. Would the hotels of those little-known metropolitan centers offer mint juleps? Were brass spittoons supplied? Or, for that matter, Cuban cigars? Were there proper leathery clubs with African mahogany fixtures where a man could escape in a pleasant fog of smoke and conversation, the immediate presence of women? Were there billiard rooms where the gas chandeliers glowed over the green beige table.